Wycliffe's Work for England. Chapter 4. By L. Lawrenson. Wycliffe and the National Opposition. So far we have been tracing the history of our reformer in his work and teaching at Oxford. But events happened about this time which brought him forward in a more public capacity as a champion of national freedom against the usurpation of Rome in the state. Other men had done so before Wycliffe, but he did not stop here, he saw that the Pope's usurped control over the consciences of men was a worse thing than control over their bodies and goods, and so he set himself to oppose both. To trace the course of these events we must turn back in history for over 100 years to the time of King John, who, as we all know, had yielded up England and Ireland to St. Peter, St. Paul, and Pope Innocent III. John abjectly laid his crown at the feet of the haughty Pandolf, the Pope's legate, who is said to have kicked it and rolled it in the dust of the muddy floor as a worthless bauble. However, he very condescendingly allowed the humble John to resume it on condition that he would pay the Pope £666. 13th, 4D. Per annum and also become his vassal. This payment had been very irregularly made, and since the majority of Edward III. It had been entirely discontinued. Suddenly Pope Urban V, in 1365 sent in a claim not only for the annual amount, but also for all the accumulated arrears. The papal court has been famous at all times for its love of money, but at this time the Pope could not help himself. It was the period of the Babylonish captivity, when the papal court had been transferred from Rome to Avignon, and was therefore under the power of France. Charles the Wise of France hoping to humble Edward the warrior of England had forced the Pope's hand. This situation gave Wycliffe his opportunity and produced events the benefits of which we are reaping today. But Edward III was no weakling, as was King John. The man who had humbled France at Crecy and Poitiers, and who at that very moment was titular monarch of one-third of its soil was little likely to yield to the insolent demands of Urban, who was but a tool in the hands of Edward's enemy. So Edward wisely said no, and summoned his parliament to support him. The commons complained that the church drew five times more money from the nation than did the king's exchequer. Moreover, they were not afraid to criticize the morals of his holiness, and these were certainly open to criticism, for at this time the papacy had probably reached its lowest stage of corruption, degradation, and debauchery. At Avignon benefices in every part of Europe were openly put up for sale and handed over to the highest bidder. The purchaser in turn squeezed out of his parish not only enough to repay his outlay, but sufficient to allow him to imitate the luxury of his superiors. So the commons of even Roman Catholic England might well complain of the simony and corruption of Avignon. All these evils were coming to a head when it pleased God to raise up his servant Wycliffe to oppose them. At this time he was a king's chaplain, and his principles influenced both king and parliament. The prelates were in an unfortunate position. They had either to become traitors to the Pope or traitors to the King. If they disobeyed the Pope, they risked their spiritual dignities. If they disobeyed the King, they risked their worldly possessions. They were wise in their generation and submitted to the power nearest at hand. With the other dukes, earls, barons, and great men, they answered that neither King John nor anybody else could give away his kingdom and his people without their consent. But though the prelates had betrayed the interests of their master the Pope, the friars were not so disposed to yield. They declared that, according to the canon law, the king, having defied the Pope, ought to be deposed. 
Then the question arose, what did the canon law say, and the Oxford professor was at once appealed to. But Wycliffe neatly turned the tables on the friars by declaring that the point was not what saith the canon law, but what saith the scriptures. It was language new to the men of that age. Canon law, said he, is of no power when it is opposed to the word of God. But God had more important work for Wycliffe than worldly politics. His lectures to his students were those of one having authority. Other masters taught from the sentences of Peter Lombard, which sentences, as their name implies, were a collection of aphorisms compiled from the works of Augustine and other of the early fathers on various points of Christian doctrine. But Wycliffe went direct to his Latin Bible and showed his hearers that in the Word of God there was not only the way of life, but the rule of life, and that both flatly contradicted the doctrines of Rome. It was about this time no doubt that he began to gather around him many of those friends who became light-bearers all over England in later years, and who helped to spread the truth and light God was graciously revealing to the people. How thankful we should be that, although wicked men, led on by Satan, have often attempted to suppress both truth and light, they have never quite succeeded. Such attempts were made later, in the time of Henry VIII. Who broke with the Pope only to set himself in the Pope's place and measure out, if that were possible, equal cruelties against the saints of God. Again, the Queen who has earned the unenviable title of Bloody Mary, became an abject slave of the papacy, and by its instructions condemned to the awful death of fire three hundred of the best men and women in England. The haughty prelates of the Church of England, at the Restoration, fought themselves vastly in advance of papal Rome, yet they continued the old persecuting spirit and brought in oppression, both sustained and severe, against the Puritans, who were the most godly people in the nation at that time. On Black Bartholomew's Day, August 24, 1662, over 2,000 ministers were ejected from their parishes for refusing to accept the act of uniformity and were left without house or bread, their people unable to help them and not daring to do so even where they could. Mr. Jeremy White compiled a list of 60,000 persons who between the Restoration in 1660 and the Revolution in 1688 had suffered on account of their religion, 5,000 of whom died in prison. In Scotland during the same period some 28,000 lost their lives under the persecuting monarchs, Charles II and James II. The same principles are at work today, for Rome never changes. In our country she cannot appear in her true colors just yet, but she has been steadily working ever since the Reformation to undo that great work. The way to defeat the works of darkness is to spread truth and light. Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? It is the duty and privilege of all who have the light to let their light shine. From exposing the wicked practices of Rome Wycliffe was led on to denounce her evil doctrines, and while the first offense might be ignored, the second must be dealt with and punished without mercy. We shall see in our next chapter what means Rome adopted to do so and how far she succeeded.